<clears throat> what if I told you that Osama bin Laden could have been caught 10 years before he was? Crazy, right? But now what if I told you that it would have been because of falconry? This is Billion Dollar Bird. I'm your host, Arden Hemingway, and today marks the last day that we explore the world of black market falconry. So far, we've talked about the origins of falconry, what it means to be a part of the black market, a guy who tried to smuggle 47 falcons through an airport, and I also tried to make some jokes, none of which were very funny. But if you missed that, uh, then it's on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, or the website, which is billiondollarbird.weebly.com. So you should go back and listen. At this moment, we know where the black market is and how it works. So today we're going to talk about who exactly is involved. And honestly, I, I was pretty shocked. Actually, not that shocked because the whole concept of a black market for falcons is pretty insane in and of itself, but my jaw did drop at some point. So, a majority of people at the falconry camps throughout the Middle East and Russia and China, but you know, mostly in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, are super duper rich. <coughs> which you would probably know if you listened to the last episode since it explained the ridiculous pricing of these birds. So if you haven't done that yet, you definitely should. But who does falconry? Obviously we know it's predominantly rich men from the United Arab Emirates, but who exactly? Well, for one, the Saudi ambassador, Prince Turki bin Faisal. He's really well known for his love of the sport, and so are hundreds of other high-ranking officials in Middle Eastern politics. But there shouldn't be anything wrong with that, right? <coughs> Let's backtrack. On February 8th, 1999, the foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates Sheikh Hamdan bin Zayed went hunting with his falcons, and he hosted a few of his friends. With him, a really very special VIP guest, none other than Osama bin Laden. Okay, so maybe this guy was friends with an internationally wanted criminal for mass murder, and maybe they both happened to like flying birds to hunt other birds. It's not uncommon for terrorists and high-ranking officials to frequent the same falconry camps, but their individual professions are rarely, if ever, discussed. Where this becomes a little bit more murky is that tax dollars are being used to pay for the birds that are being used, as well as covering the expenses of the trips, and some of that money accidentally ends up into the pockets of terrorists. So if I know about this, surely everyone else does, right? Well, yeah, obviously. But before the mid-90s, the United States government was clueless. 
Only when the country decided to enter an agreement in an attempt to force out the Taliban did Pakistan disclose the existence of an airfield used for falconry by royals. From that point forward, the State Department attempted to monitor falcon camps because, and I quote, they were a part of a pattern of contact between elements of the United Arab Emirates and elements of Taliban-ruled Afghanistan, including Al-Qaeda. And that's according to Steve Cole, who was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for Ghost Wars, the book from which that quote comes. Eventually, it was revealed that bin Laden was going to be at one of these camps, and the United States decided to orchestrate an airstrike. Months of planning went into it, and in the end, they did nothing. But why? Well, it's a long and convoluted story. But remember, this is pre-9-11, so bin Laden wasn't quite as wanted by the United States as he would be within just two years. But how did they even find him in the first place? Well, the U.S. hired a group of Afghans who were working for the CIA to find him. And that's exactly what they did. The agents discovered that he was going to be visiting a falconry camp in southern Kandahar, arranged by guests from the United Arab Emirates. So the CIA flew satellites above the camp, and they saw who they thought was bin Laden. But with one of the world's most wanted men, they also discovered a large C-130. And yeah, I I did have to Google what that is. Um, It's a plane. So this one in particular had a camouflage pattern and a tail number that belonged to none other than a United Arab Emirates government official. So the strike was called off. When I first started researching this incident, I really couldn't believe that this was possible. The assassination of one of the most indisputably evil people was called off because of a corrupt government official. Who the would stop something like that? Apparently, National Security Advisor Richard Clark and the Director of Central Intelligence George Tenet. According to the 9-11 Commission report, Quote, Policymakers were concerned about the danger that a strike would kill an Emirati prince or other senior official who might be with bin Laden or close by. Are you kidding me? Alright, so I'm gonna get a little conspiracy theory with you. Well, I mean more than I already have. Um, during the time the strike was supposed to be executed, the chief of staff of the United Arab Emirates Armed Forces... Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed was negotiating the sale of 80 F-16 jets with the National Security Council advisor to the Clinton administration, Richard Clark. So if we do a little math, which I seem to be doing a lot of in my podcasts, I I really don't know why, each of those jets is appraised at $6.5 million dollars which means the deal would sit at around $520 million. The timing is so extraordinarily coincidental, and it might be a stretch, but who knows, I'm just throwing it out there. What we do have to remember is that it's been 17 years since September 11th, 2001, and that the United States has just barely recovered. 
Had this strike happened, had Falcons been the reason that Osama bin Laden was killed, we wouldn't be where we are today. And the more I've researched this, it's just being proven again and again that bin Laden's love of raptors was overlooked. Listen to this clip. One person was coercively interrogated, and I'll just describe briefly what happened to him. He was, um, he was the real 20th hijacker. He went to Orlando Airport. He, uh, an I, uh, inspections uh, officer thought there was something suspicious about him, sent it back to Saudi Arabia. He then went to the Battle of Tora Bora. He fled to Pakistan. He was picked up, and he went to Guantanamo. In Guantanamo, he said he was in Afghanistan because of his pressing interest in falconry, which obviously wasn't true. Um, and um, after a few months, they kind of they realized he was the same guy who'd been turned back at Orlando, the 20th hijacker. And then he was subjected to a pretty severe regime that uh, Susan Crawford, who was a federal judge appointed by Ronald Reagan, said amounted to torture. He was kept up for 43 days. He was subjected to you know uh, cold and heat and and. Uh, white noise and lots of Christina Aguilera music at very loud volumes, and, and he was really, you know, he was uh, discomforted, uh, let's put it that way. Anyway, so uh, he actually, it seems that he is the first person to identify the, the courier, the Kuwaiti, as being somebody who was important in Al-Qaeda, from what we can gather from on the public record. I think I heard a little blip, a tiny mention of falconry, but it was only laughed off as a lie, right? Okay, but according to an anonymous source, that 20th hijacker of 9-11, he was bin Laden's private falconer. But there's more. The United States could have been heavily informed, and not just by their agents on the ground. One man, Alan Howell Parrott, dedicated years to warning the United States about the connection of the black market of falconry to terrorism. He contacted the CIA, the FBI, and he provided film evidence, emails, connections, and stories of imprisonment and torture. But he was ignored. And so, of course, I had my doubts about it, but then I found this. It's not like he's coming and he's making allegations. There is heavy documentation, yet nobody was willing to act upon it. Why not? That was a Middle Eastern expert on finance. I was asking myself the same question, and I got my answer. It's money. Parrott claims that it was because the government was receiving money to pretend the problem didn't exist. If you're just listening to me, this sounds like it came from a conspiracy theory subreddit. But it didn't. I'm not going to lie, at one point I did go down the rabbit hole of survivalism because those are the types of people who discuss things like the United States' failure to catch bin Laden. But to give this at least some validity, Bob Bayer, an ex-CIA agent, said, People in the State Department, the National Security Council, the White House, know that when they leave the White House, that's the end of their government service, and they need money. You cannot afford to offend the Gulf Arabs because they've got the money. It's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. Now back to our guy, the man, AHP. He was actually one of the main players in the black market of the United Arab Emirates. But eventually, he was so disgusted by the system 
that he shifted to protecting falcons rather than selling them. But it took him a long time to get to that place. Let's listen to what he has to say. At least I was supplying and training the falcons, without which these camps could not exist. I'm interested in falcons, but I've been sucked into a whirlpool of intrigue involving terrorism against my will, against my interest. But what do you do when you walk in a room and you see a falcon and a terrorist? You can report it, but then what do you do when nobody wants to hear it? Eventually, he did take his job as protector of the falcons really seriously. At one point, he even lobbied the Russian government in an effort to protect Jer Falcons, and an agreement was proposed. He would pay $25,000 for every falcon that was taken out of circulation. But that never happened, and he never really said why. When the deal didn't go through, he began talking to a smuggler, nicknamed T2, who ran a ring that went from Iran to Turkmenistan. Here's the catch. T2 doesn't smuggle falcons. He smuggles other things. But his friends do. According to Parrot, T2 and Bin Laden met at a falconry camp in the Baluchistan region. This was around the time that the US said Bin Laden was living in a cave in Waziristan. Bin Laden won, US zero. But not to worry, there were developments. Each of Bin Laden's falcons were microchipped, so he wouldn't lose one of his very incredibly wildly expensive birds. Parrot went on to say that the transmitters had a range of 10 miles in the mountains and 100 miles in line of sight. So he did what any good Samaritan would do. He wrote a letter to the chief of the CIA, but was ignored. Let's be real, if I sound like a conspiracy theorist, what do you think a 30-page letter about Falcon's microchips and Bin Laden sounds like? I can actually give you an example. We have information from a source that hunted with Bin Laden in 2004. He spent time with him. Bin Laden travels inside Iran with only four persons during the falconry hunting season. The source has learned the frequency channels on each of Bin Laden's falcons. Bin Laden uses the same three frequencies while he's hunting. Again, doesn't sound too sane. Regardless, the letter was never answered, nor were there any subsequent operations to investigate the area for radio transmissions during the falconry hunting season. So, Parrot took another step and sent it to the DCI. It went on red. The National Clandestine Service left it unopened as well. Finally, it was sent to the NSA, who didn't even bother to pretend that they had read it. And so, falconry camps will continue, and terrorism will continue, and the bribery of military leaders will continue. Okay, so most, if not all, of the information in this episode can be linked back to one man. Alan Howell Parrott, star of the film Feathered Cocaine, an expert on the black market of falconry, having been engrossed in it himself. But as I was putting out feelers for people to interview, something happened. A professional falconer and raptor biologist and I emailed for a little bit, and what he told me, I'll admit, 
was scary. I tried to get him on the pod for an interview, but he refused multiple times. According to our anonymous expert, While falcon smuggling does of course occur, its extent and the grandiose prices portrayed by the media are a gross exaggeration. Anyone reporting million dollar prices for falcons needs to be dismissed. I know many breeders that would be living well if this were true. Okay, so he doesn't think the birds are selling for millions. At this point, I began to question everything that I had learned. But then, he went on. The central figure of the Feathered Cocaine movie, a popular and often cited film, is based on the comments of the sociopathic liar and convicted smuggler, Alan Parrott. He did attend Cornell, but was dismissed in his third year, and records clearly show he was not even close to the first to breed and sell gyre falcons. One of the people who has provided a wealth of information for this project was diminished right before my eyes. And so I took it upon myself to do a little bit of character research on him. If it was being claimed that this man was a sociopath, I wanted to make sure that was true. And while I did find this clip. King Khaled wanted to buy my bird. The bird uh, actually was killed. And another Arab gentleman was asking me if he could buy the bird to stuff it and put it in a bell jar on his desk. I refused and he kept calling me and calling me and finally I told him that I would give him my dead falcon, which he could stuff and put on his desk on one condition. I said, okay, I want you to kill your son, give him to me, I'll stuff him. And he stopped calling me. <laughs> but even after listening to it, I still needed to dig a little deeper because to me, that just seems like someone who's really, really, really passionate about their hobby. As for the rest of the email from our anonymous falconer, he went on for a little while longer about falcon smuggling and how it's being fought throughout ornithological communities. There was a name drop of a doctor, a brief summary of breeding farms, and then talk about corruption. All of that information was in his initial email, so of course I was intrigued. I asked him if he would be willing to discuss over the phone or perhaps be interviewed. The answer was short, no. He cited that it would be too dangerous without explaining himself further. Eventually, he stopped replying entirely. The one person who had made me question three months of research had disappeared. So, for my question of the day, who do you believe? I honestly don't know. The New York Times, the Huffington Post, and Forbes all seem to think that the black market exists. And the statistics aforementioned in episode two also, according to those publications, are correct. Having a person force me to question everything I believed to be true changed the entire project. So I went looking for more answers and came across an interview with the filmmakers of Feathered Cocaine. My first thought when listening to the interview was that their problems echoed mine. We came into a lot of the same issues. 
during our research phase, we, uh, we met this uh, wall of silence. There was, you know, almost nobody wanted to speak to us. When I first began doing my research, I reached out to dozens of people. And of those who replied, and I'm going to be honest, there, there really weren't that many, no one wanted to talk to me. And I really couldn't figure out why. So I turned to other sources and, like them, discovered Alan Howell Parrott. Well, we had some people that, you know, that were in the Fafgrunig uh, community and, um, and they all said, you know, no, no, you don't want to talk to this guy. We don't want to talk to him. Sound familiar? My anonymous falconer said the same thing. Don't discuss Alan Howell Parrott, he's a sociopath. But if he's the only one willing to discuss it, where else am I going to get my information? The initial reason that I began listening to this interview in the first place because I was trying to discover whether or not there was actual validity to our anonymous falconers claims of Alan Howell Parrott's life as a sociopathic liar. The fact that he dropped out of college, and that I did find. But I found nothing that talked about his character, other than that he was an interesting and a little bit crazy. When the filmmakers did talk about their muse, there was only one thing that they actually said. Like a lonely, lonely voice in the desert, trying to save the falcons when other people were trying to make money out of them. And he was a minor character. It took us uh, one and a half year maybe to, to gain his full trust. Form your own opinion. But when I was listening to this, I just heard them talking about a guy who knew a lot about Middle Eastern falconry and the black market. He doesn't seem crazy, other than that's his hobby of choice. And they spent years with him. So with that, I leave you here, without a definitive resolution. Whether or not the black market exists is not the question, but the extent and the grandiose of it. That's where it starts to get hazy. Thank you so much for listening. This is the last episode of Billion Dollar Bird, but if you do have any more questions or even a comment, drop me an email at billiondollarbirdpodcast at gmail.com. As always, I'm going to remind you to check out the website just because it has some cool stuff and also because I don't want anyone to yell at me for plagiarism. So uh, check out my sources. They're pretty cool. Um, it's on billiondollarbird.weebly.com, if I haven't said it enough before. I uploaded a link to an actual conspiracy theorist talking about this, which is pretty cool. Um, and there's some awesome footage of falcons flying and stuff. I'm telling you, it's a good website. Finally, I just really, really want to thank everyone who has helped me with this project. It was so incredibly fun, and I learned a lot. Um, Mr. McCloud, I hope you can tell that I drank coffee before uh, recording this episode, so thank you for telling me to do that. 
um, and for sort of kind of inspiring me to do this project and just pushing me to get it done. Uh, Mr. Peck and Miss Wild Goose for helping me logistically. And lastly, my family for listening to it because pretty sure no one else does. Anyway, um, that's it. Stay wild, guys. <laughs>